But we are in Romans chapter 15 this morning. In fact, I'm going to do go off my notes a little bit here. Um, I want you to st- want you to start actually in Romans chapter one. I just want to read the first verses, first 15 verses in Romans chapter 1 to see as we look at Paul's introduction to the letter, because this will be relevant to what we look at now at the closing chapters of the letter. Paul started the the letter to the Romans saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to whom are to all who are beloved of God in Rome called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for, all, for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So that was the introduction to the letter. And it's not that we're going all the way back. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. (laughs) I just got my voice back, so now hopefully I won't lose it again by having to shout. So that was the introduction to the letter, and we're not going all the way back to the beginning. I know you're thinking, we're in chapter 15, now we're going back to chapter 1. But as we come to verse 14 in Romans chapter 15, Paul's going to begin to bring the letter to a close. And the main portion of the book has been finished, the, the meat or the body of the letter. We've, we've gone through all that. And from this point on, he will now begin to close out the book with some personal observations and exhortations for the church at Rome. And as he and we begin to wrap up the book of Romans. Now, that doesn't mean by any means that we're going to finish the book today. Um, Not by any means. We still have several more weeks to get through to get to the end of the letter. Paul's farewell to the Romans is the longest of all of his letters. In fact, by verse count, it is longer than either the letter to Philemon, it's longer than the letter to Titus, and it's the exact same length in verses, number of verses, as his letter to Second Thessalonians, to the Thess- second letter to the Thessalonians. 
So there's still quite a bit of material that we see in the final chapter and a half of the book of Romans. So as we come to this more personal part of the letter, we see something about the man Paul himself. We're going to see something about his personal side, how he viewed himself, how he viewed his ministry, similar to some of the things that he said in the introduction to the letter. As, and it wraps up the book of Romans very fittingly because he's, he started off with this in chapter 1 by seeing some of the, saying some of the same things, revealing his ministry and how he viewed his responsibility to carry out his task of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In those opening verses, he revealed himself as an apostle, a bondservant of God. He said that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, and we saw that he was eager to bring the gospel to Rome. Now, as we, came, uh, as we come to verse 14 of Romans 15, we'll see Paul turn his attention back to talking about that ministry, showing once again what his ministry was, what it was all about, and we'll see how his comments in chapter 1 and here provide nice bookends to this letter. The introductions and closings of books are sometimes the hardest for us to get through. Um, we would rather spend our time looking at the meaty middle, quote-unquote, meaty middle of the books. But this part of the book really tells us something about the Apostle Paul, tells us about his life and his ministry, how he thought, how he cared for others, how he prayed for others. And it shows us the example of Paul, who was a godly man who lived to serve the Lord, and we see what his perspective was on his own ministry. He's a man who at the end of his life would say, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's one thing to realize personally that we are to put on Christ, that we are to mold ourselves after him, but how much of an encouragement is it to each and every one of us? We could probably each point to an individual who is a godly example of a Christ-like life, who's someone that we have looked at in our lives and said, this is the person that I wish my walk with the Lord was like their walk with the Lord. Sometimes someone who was there when you were an immature believer, maybe you were new to the faith, maybe someone who you thought, they seem to have the entire Bible memorized. They can go anywhere. They know all the verses to every song. They were never selfish in anything that they did. As parents, I'll bet we've often had those thoughts in our own lives about being an example to our own children that's just like that. How am I doing being an example for my children or my grandchildren? Am I showing them the model of a Christian life? Do they look at me and say, that's what a Christian is like? It's that type of thing that I think about when I see the life of Paul, when I see these, these intros and, and conclusions to letters as Paul talks about his ministry. And as we come to these sections where Paul gives us some personal information on his own life, either in these intros or conclusions. What's amazing is that, and this is the reason why I, I took us back to chapter 1, is that when the Romans were getting this letter, they heard the introduction just an hour maybe, 45 minutes before they heard the, the comments that Paul has for him at the conclusion of the letter. 
Now for us, it's been about 18 months since we've been in the introduction to the letter. So that's why I wanted to read it to you again to make it fresh in our minds so that we can see these bookends that Paul's presenting here. So Paul's going to start off here with, these, with some personal encouragement to the Romans. And we saw that in the introduction as well. He's just finished writing to them about the depravity of man. Right? That's what he started off with. He, he gives this introduction to the letter, and then in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he starts talking about how sinful and depraved man is. He's talking, he talked about the need for salvation, about freedom from sin and putting aside the deeds of darkness. He's issued them strong commands to, to submit to the authority of God. He's told them that they need to love one another without hypocrisy, that they need to put aside their personal differences, Jews and Gentiles alike, and glorify God by serving together with one mind. And yet in all 15 chapters of this letter, not once did he feel the need to rebuke this church. In fact, we see throughout there that, they're, that they were worthy of strong commendation and encouragement. And he wants them to know that he hasn't written these things to them because they're immature, because they're ignorant, or because they're lacking in knowledge in any way. But he's written these things to them because they are a mature and godly church, and he wants to remind them of these truths in the faith. And we'll see how important that is. So he says in verse 14, and he's talking to the Roman church, he says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. And most likely here, he's using these words to relate back directly to what he'd just been talking about, right? The attitude that the weaker and the stronger brothers are to have one, towards one another, as these Jews and Gentiles were serving in this church together, and they would have differences of some of the things that they held to and of their convictions. In the last chapter and a half, he's used some very strong comments to get his point across. Don't judge or hold each other in contempt. Don't destroy or ruin him for whom Christ died. But as he winds down this letter, he wants to assure them of his conviction regarding their spiritual maturity, his confidence. And he starts off by addressing them as brethren. There is no doubt in his mind with what the spiritual state of this church was. He's not dealing with a body that has no indication of a spirit-filled life, but one that is made up of true believers, brethren in the body of Christ. And so he says in this very first verse, and we'll spend quite a bit of time on just this one verse, but he's convinced of three things concerning them. He has a settled conviction regarding them. It's been, it has been true in the past and carries on into the present, all these things that he says. And the first thing that he says about them is that he's convinced of their goodness. And this goodness is godly moral character, kindness, uprightness in their life. And this really goes beyond just simple kindness. Why right? We can say, oh, that, that's a good person. He's very kind. But it goes beyond that. It carries the idea of being willing to do the right thing. This is one of the things that characterizes them, that he points out specifically about them. Word has come to Paul. We, we remember, Paul's never visited this church. He doesn't know these people personally. But word has come to Paul at some point in time that has convinced him of this characteristic of those in this church. Now, early in the letter, Paul sent, spent considerable time 
explaining the condition of man. We talked about that starting in verse 18 of chapter 1. Man is depraved. Man is unable to do good. He's worthless. Basically the exact opposite of what he's saying about this church. Now as he directly addresses this church at Rome, consisting of those who have been redeemed, he notes that they are full of goodness. And this is a total transformation in the life of the believer, from being unable to do anything good at all to being full of goodness. And if you remember what we saw in Romans chapter 2, it says back there that every man will give an account to God. In Romans 2 verse 6 says, Who will render to each person according to his deeds to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So there was a contrast there. But he said that those who persevere in doing good will receive eternal life. And true goodness only comes from having a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you remember back in chapter 2, we talked about how the good that people could do, even though Paul hadn't directly addressed it yet, is only possible through salvation. It's only possible through being declared righteous by God. So having believed in Christ for salvation, coming to the realization that we are sinners, that we are without hope in and of ourselves, we have placed ourselves at His mercy as the only one who can possibly save us from our own sins and come to Him in total submission and sacrifice of our lives. And He has set us apart as His own. And He has given us His Spirit to change us from the inside out, to transform us into an acceptable sacrifice of service to the Lord. Having the Holy Spirit inside of us, indwelling us, producing fruit in our lives. Turn with me over to the book of Galatians, fifth chapter of Galatians. <clears throat> Unlike the Romans, the Galatians uh, were a church body that Paul did have to chastise. He did have to rebuke them, and he chastised them rather harshly because they were a church that was in danger of accepting another gospel, a gospel that added works of the law into it, which, as he pointed out in the first chapter of that letter, was not really another gospel at all. But throughout the letter, Paul is rather strict with the Galatians, and in chapter 5, he warns them about living according to the flesh. He lists out what the deeds of the flesh are. But then down towards the end of the chapter, he contrasts that with the things that are produced in the life of the true believer, one who has the Holy Spirit residing in them. So look at verse 22 of Galatians 5. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And all of these things that he lists here as the fruit of the Spirit are things produced in the life of the believer. They're the fruit of the Spirit who has made his abode within us. Like the fruit of a tree, right? We talk about the fruit of the Spirit. It's like the fruit of a tree. You have an apple tree. What does an apple tree do? It produces fruit, right? How do you know that it's an apple tree? Well, you see apples hanging from it. I probably told you the story before. When we lived in Colorado, we had trees in our backyard. First year we were there, there wasn't anything on them. I had no idea what kind of trees they were. The next year, there's something growing on the trees. They were apples. That's how I knew it was an apple tree. Fruit was produced on those trees. 
But these things like that are produced within us by the Holy Spirit. And these are things that should characterize us and will characterize us. We should be known for these things that he lists here. And goodness, there at the end of verse 22, is one of the things that he mentions. That's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 15. And we see it again in the book of Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And we really have the same type of contrast that we have in Galatians here in Ephesians 5. Paul's going to contrast what we formerly were before we were saved, right? In Galatians, he talked about the fruit of the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh before that. But here he's going to contrast what we were formerly before we were saved with what we are now as Christians. If you look down at verse 8 of Ephesians 5, he says, For you were formerly darkness. That's what you were before. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Then in verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And once again, there's our word, goodness, right? It's presented here as being a fruit of the light, something that is produced by being of the Lord, no longer in the darkness. We are no longer characterized by the things of the darkness, but of the spirit and of the light. So goodness is a part of that. And that's what Paul is attributing to the Romans back in Romans chapter 15. It's not goodness that is found in them naturally. It's not because, oh, I found a group of good people. But it's goodness that is produced in them by the regenerating work of God in their lives. So that's the first thing that he notices about them. But then there's, there's another thing in verse 14 of chapter 15. He says, he says they are characterized by knowledge. They are filled with knowledge. And as a people who have come to know Christ and grown in the Word, their condition now is that they have knowledge of the Word of God. Through teaching, through study of the Word, they have been filled with that type of knowledge. Unlike, unlike goodness, which is produced by the Spirit, knowledge doesn't just come into our minds when we're saved. Knowledge is something that we have to study, that we have to understand. This once again comes, it comes as a function of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12 tells us one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to give us understanding into the things that God has freely given to us through His Word. We saw in Romans 12, too, that our transformation takes place by the renewing of our minds. This renewal takes place through the Holy Spirit working in us to give us understanding again into the Word of God. So knowledge is an important part of the Christian life. It is through this knowledge that we grow. It's through that knowledge that we are able to make godly decisions, that we can resist temptations, that we can refute those who are in error. We can know how to evangelize and share our faith with others. The study of the Word of God feeds us and prepares us for every good work in our lives. And the Romans, they weren't an ignorant people. Paul says that they were full of knowledge. He's commending them for it. And I think it's appropriate here that knowledge comes with his discussion of goodness because knowledge doesn't do you any good if it isn't used. If it isn't used with moral godliness, with uprightness and a desire to do what is good. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthians that knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And the idea that he's getting across there is that knowledge isn't meant to be by itself. 
without the proper working out of your faith in love, knowledge is nothing. If I go to school to study to be a surgeon, I'm not going back to school, but if I was to do that, to study to become a great surgeon, and I gain knowledge of everything that there is to know about medicine, that knowledge doesn't do any good unless I put it to use, does it? If I sit back and I go, or I walk through a hospital and I think, I've got all this knowledge, oh, I know exactly what that person has, I know what that person has, I know, I know how to fix that. Well, I'm not in medicine, though. I'm not, I'm not going to operate, I'm not going to do any of this stuff. What good is that? It's no good at all, is it? If I never actually do it, it's nothing. But the Romans, they had a proper balance. They had the goodness, the character of godly people, the willingness to do what was right, and they had the knowledge of the Word of God directing their service, guiding them in what it was that they should be doing. You see churches today, or Christians today, that feel that this is an either-or situation. A lot of times you get people that fall on one side or the other. In some cases, you get people that say, I'm not going to bother with that doctrinal stuff. I'm not going to bother. I don't need to sit under teach. I don't need. I just want to serve. I just want to keep moving. I just want to keep jumping in and doing things. And it may seem like an admirable spirit of service, but what are you jumping into? What direction are you going with your service? It's like... You know, kids get Lego sets, or adults get Lego sets. I know more adults probably to get Lego sets these days than kids. But you get Lego sets, right? And you take the box of Legos and you just open it up and you just dump it out. You tear open all the bags and you just dump them out into a big pile. And then you just jump in, right? You just start putting bricks together. After a while, you look at someone who's doing that and you think, what are you building? What are you doing? They're not looking at the instructions of the Legos. They're just starting to connect blocks together. And you think you're never going to get to the picture on the box by doing it that way without following the instructions, the, the, getting the knowledge. They don't even know what they're building because they don't bother with the knowledge found in those instructions. And that's how some Christians are with their service. I'm, I don't care what the Bible says. Just let me do something. But then you have the other side. You know, I'm too busy studying to, do, to serve. I could sit and argue doctrine with you all day, but I, I don't have the time to use it or to put it into practice, teach it to anyone else. That's just like the surgeon we talked about earlier. What good is it? They've got the, they're the person that takes the Lego box, and instead of dumping out all the bricks, they grab the, they grab the instruction manual, and they go sit in a room, and they study it, and they memorize it. They know everything about that Lego piece. They know what all the pieces that go together, and you ask them, well, where is it? Where are the Legos? Oh, I don't know. I left that. I've stuck that in a drawer somewhere. But I've got it memorized. I know everything about it. What good is that? God didn't give us his word for us to memorize and store away, but we're to use it in our lives. We're to share it with others. He told the Ephesians in chapter 4 of that letter, and we've read this verse many times. Chapter 4, he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. He just told them everything about their salvation and about God calling them. And now he gets to verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, Now walk in a manner worthy of that that's happened to you. 
That's, that's living your life. You know your calling. You know what God has done for you. Now live it out. Godly character and knowledge go hand in hand. They're to be used together. So we should be filled with both. And this prepares the way for the third, the third thing that Paul says in verse 14 of chapter 15, being able to admonish one another. The word for admonish is it's a word that means to correct, exhort, instruct, encourage someone to make a changes or adjustments in their lives. There are times when we as believers need to admonish one another. We need to talk to people about things that need correction. And you say, well, wait a minute. Didn't we just study through a chapter and a half of chapters that said we, are to, we aren't to judge each other, that we're to put aside our differences and just serve together? Yes, in areas of liberty. But that's why when we went through that, I made a point to say we're talking about things that aren't clear in those chapters. We're talking about things that, where there's no clear directive given by God. But that doesn't mean that in things that are clear that we're to compromise or that we're to sit back and let a brother be dragged down into sinful behavior. If I see a brother cheating on his taxes, I should admonish him. That's not what a Christian should do. If he's not serving, if he's one who's paying back evil for evil, if he's causing another brother to stumble, all these things that we've seen clearly in Romans. Through the knowledge that I have in these areas that Scripture does address, coupled with the goodness that I have, the willingness to do what's right, the desire I have to do that, I will try to correct that situation. I should be willing to confront my brother. Now, sometimes people like to do the admonishing without the first two. Oh, you've just given me a free license to admonish someone. The manifesting of the goodness and, and, and the knowledge, they'd like to do without those. We might be in a situation where we personally don't like what something's doing, and even though we have no scriptural support for our opinion, by golly, I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And that's the way that some people act. No, this is admonishment that flows from goodness and knowledge. Genuinely wanting to help your brother or sister in Christ to edify them, to build them up so that they can continue their service of the Lord without the burden of error. Sometimes we have a natural tendency not to want to be confrontational, right? We go too far the other way. There's some people that are like, oh, just give me somebody to confront. And other times there's people that are like, I, you know what, it's not my business. I'm not sticking my nose in that. We try to ignore the situation altogether. But really, it's for their good and it's for the good of the body. It doesn't do this body or any other body any good when believers sit back and let error or even sinful behavior continue without being confronted. We confront them in love. We admonish them in love. Many times, even when done in love, it isn't received well. People feel as if they're being attacked, cornered, and they lash back. And if they are in sin, a lot of times there's that guilty conscience that affects that. But when we have the instruction from God's word coupled with godly character and a desire to do what's right, we need to be willing to correct when it is necessary. Look with me over to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 
In Colossians chapter 1, towards the end of the chapter, Paul talks about his ministry, being made a minister to the church. Stewardship bestowed on him by God. And it was bestowed on Paul to make the riches of God known among the Gentiles, right? Just like we've seen in Romans. But then now in verse 28 of chapter 1, he says this. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. With the knowledge of God's word. You see what he says here. Admonishing every man. There's our word from Romans chapter 15. Teaching them wisdom. Paul saw admonishing as a part of his ministry. Using it while proclaiming the word of God. There's correction that takes place in his ministry. Now you might say, well, that was Paul though. Paul was an apostle. So he was obviously qualified to admonish someone. Well, turn over a couple chapters to chapter 3 of Colossians. And we see what he says here. Now in chapter 3, verse 12, he talks about how we are to put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility towards one another, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, he says. And in verse 14, he comes to a familiar theme to us, or what should be a familiar theme. He says, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And this is how we are to interact with one another in the church having the overriding attitude of love towards each other. But then look what he says in verse 16. He says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And you see what he includes here. As we're interacting with one another, as we're, as we're loving one another, we are to be teaching one another and admonishing one another. There's our word again. And once again, it's done from a position of knowledge. There's a scriptural, scriptural, scriptural basis that we have here. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's what we know. It's part of how we interact with each other in the church. The word for admonish is the Greek word nuthateo. And I don't say that to throw Greek words at you, but I say it because it's been brought over into English as nuthetic, and that may be a familiar word for you, because in recent years it's been used to describe a type of counseling within the church. But correcting and instructing one another isn't something that we should only do if we've gone through a specific program or gotten some type of degree. Paul is saying here, as well as what he's saying back in Romans chapter 15, that being filled with goodness and having knowledge of the word of God, we should be able to admonish one another. It's just a matter of being a believer. It's a matter of loving one another. It's a matter about caring one another and recognizing error and having concern for our brethren to the point that we're willing to say something. And recognizing error is the aspect of it that comes with knowledge, right? How do we know error if we don't have knowledge. We should never use the excuse, well, you know, that person's in sin. I know that they're engaged in that kind of behavior that they shouldn't be, but, and, and I know that they shouldn't be involved in that, but, you know, I'm not qualified to say something to them. I haven't gone to any special training. I haven't taken any special classes. I'm not a counselor. That can't be, that shouldn't be an excuse for fulfilling our obligation to one another in the church. It's like being as a parent and saying, you know, I, my kid, he's out of control. He's doing, he's doing all these things. But you know what? I don't have a degree in child psychology, so there's nothing I can do with him. No, 
We wouldn't do that. We correct the situation because we love them. Now, if someone wants to take special training to be able to do this better, fine, good, do that. Take counseling training, whatever, knock yourself out. That can be beneficial. But that shouldn't be a prerequisite for correcting another believer that we know to be in sin or in error. Now, on the flip side of this, and the more, maybe the more difficult side to it, we shouldn't be people going around with magnifying glasses to see who we should admonish without understanding that someone may come to us and admonish us as well. I can't go around thinking that I need to correct everyone around me and then get upset when someone approaches me and says, hey, I have this concern about you. I need to be open to the Word of God myself. When someone comes to me with a concern about something they see in my life and they approach me with love and God's Word, I need to be open to what they have to say. Maybe there are areas where I need to change. Maybe there are things that I'm involved in that I shouldn't be doing. So back in Romans chapter 15, this is a picture of a godly, mature people of God, of a, God, of a body that is made of individuals concerned about what they're doing. Uh, but it's a body that's, con that's concerned with functioning with the same mind, concerning, concerned about others, and ultimately devoted to bringing glory to God. The Romans were a mature and godly people a people who knew the Word of God. And so if that's the case, why did Paul write this letter to them? I mean, this, there's clear instruction here. You ask yourself, if, if they knew so much, if they were already there, then why did Paul write this letter to them? Well, he goes on in verse 15. And I told you we'd spend a lot of time in that one verse. Verse 15, But I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given me from God. Paul's ministry to the Romans was to remind them of things that they had already been taught, that they already knew. The majority of this letter dealt with the gospel, but Paul was not evangelizing the church at Rome. He was teaching them in more detail. He was writing to them boldly, he said, giving them a reminder of what they had already known and accepted for salvation and about how they should be conducting themselves as believers in Jesus Christ. Many times when someone first comes to believe in Christ, they have an unquenchable zeal for the Word. And we've probably all seen that. Hopefully we've gone through that ourselves, right? You get saved and you're like, you want to attend all the Bible studies, all the classes. You want to read all the books. You want to ask questions and you're hungry for the Word of God. But then over time, maybe after many years, the zeal kind of wears off. Maybe people have learned a lot. They've been through every book in the Bible. They've studied every book. They've, they reach a comfort level with the Word, a familiarity with it, and almost plateau off. The danger when believers get to a state like that is that we, we feel like, I don't really need to hear that again. Oh, there's a class on Romans? Yeah, you know, I've studied Romans. I know Romans. Why do I need to go hear a class like that? Oh, I've been through the Gospel of John, and I've heard it before. I've read through it many times. Why do I need to go through the Gospel of John? You know, we can say, I've got this book almost practically, or practically memorized. I don't need to go through a study of that book. You know what? When we, come to, when we come here to study God's Word, I don't have any illusions that I have anything new to tell you. 
I don't have anything new to teach you. John, teaching through John's gospel, there's nothing new there. These books were written 2,000 years ago. We're not teaching new things, but we are all we all need to be reminded of the things that God has for us here. Now, there may be some people that are newer in the faith that have never heard these things before. But by and large, if I'm coming up with something brand new, that should be a concern for you, right? These things aren't new. These are things that have, we've had for thousands of years. But we need to be com- reminded because we get complacent and we forget and we need to be stirred up again and again and again to hear what God has for us in his word. In fact, that's how Peter puts it in his second letter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he tells his readers, I consider it right, in verse 13, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And then two chapters later, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. It wasn't new. Peter knew it wasn't new. Paul knew that this wasn't new. But we constantly need to be reminded of what is in God's Word. Again and again and again. We sit there saying, oh, I read, through the, I read through the Bible in a year. Great, I finished that book. No, you didn't finish the book. You just read through it once. Anyone who seriously studies the Word of God has seen this. How many times have you come to a book read through it and thought, I'd forgotten that that was there. I didn't know that was there. I, that seems brand new to me, even though I've read this 20 times before. Well, that really makes what I heard on, in Sunday school or in the church service make a lot more sense now as I read through it throughout the week. That happens to us all the time, doesn't it? It's important that we are reminded again and again of the things of God. Paul tells the Philippians, Philippians 3.1, to write the same things again is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Studying the Word of God again and again is a safeguard for us. We are never going to learn it all. We are never going to get to a point where we say, close the book, I'm done. Never. We need to be convinced as we study through the Word of two things. One, that every time we read it and study it, we will grow in knowledge each and every time. And two, we'll understand more and more about how much we don't know about God's Word. The more you read it, the more you understand, I've got so much more to study. We can never study the Bible too much. So he's reminding them, because of the grace that was given me from God, he says, because of his apostolic ministry given to him by God, Paul saw it as his obligation, part of his ministerial responsibility to write to them. And this leads into a discussion that Paul's going to give about himself and his ministry. The beginning of the glimpse that we get about Paul, a godly man who was a great servant of God. That's how he viewed himself. That's why he starts off almost every letter saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. The beginning glimpse of what we get about him. Now, we'll notice one thing as we go through the next several verses, and we'll go through them rather quickly. We have to. Um, After reading about Paul, we don't come away with a thought of, oh, what a great man Paul was, but rather, what a great God we have. What a magnificent example we have of someone who was used by God to share his gospel with the world. 
And the first thing we note at the end of verse 15, it says, grace that was given me from God. Paul was an apostle by God's grace to the Gentiles, and there's, but there's no credit or honor due to Paul in what he had written them. It is God doing a mighty work through him. And all the glory goes to God. And the grace that God gave him and then is shown in verse 16, where he says, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified, by the Holy Spirit. Now the details about his ministry build on each other here in verse 16. The first thing he says, he's, he mentions that he's a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Now Paul, we're going to see here that Paul saw his apostolic office as a sacred service. And he'll talk about it being a priestly service. It involves having a service of worship to God. Paul was a servant of Christ in his proclaiming of the gospel to Gentiles. He is serving Jesus Christ in his ministry. And, that draw, and he draws that out as the first thing about himself. This is not me. This is my service to the Lord. And so right away we see that Paul's ministry is defined by his relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second thing he says is that ministering as a priest the gospel of God. Now proclamation of the gospel was part of his priestly ministry. This is, a ne this is necessary for the sacrifice that he was offering, and that's what he's leading up to here. But Paul's responsibility as a servant of Christ to the Gentiles was to proclaim the gospel to them, thus preparing them to be an acceptable sacrifice to God. Now, in the Old Testament, that was the role of the priest, to prepare the sacrifices to be acceptable to God. And Paul is comparing his own ministry to that same type of practice. Now, Paul is not saying here that he was a priest like the Old Testament priests or the priests under the law. Anyone who is a believer in Christ is part of a priesthood now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9 talk about the priesthood that we are in. And that would include Paul, and that would include all of us. And there's a whole discussion we could get onto that. We could go to Hebrews and talk about that, but we don't have the time for that. But he's not saying here that as an apostle, he's part of some special class of priestly believers, a class that is required uh, for other believers to represent them before God. Well, if I want to communicate with God, I have to go to Paul, and he's my priest. That's not what he's saying. All believers now have the ability, now have the direct access to God because of Jesus being the great high priest who did away with the Levitical priesthood. But he's showing here that as he functions as a priest, one who has direct access to God, as we all do, part of his ministry is to the Gentiles. And that brings us to the third thing that he says, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable. As a priest, here is the offering that he brings before God, that of the Gentiles. And this wasn't a job to Paul. This wasn't a burden to him. He saw his responsibility as the apostle to the Gentiles as the sacred service of a priest bringing an offering before God. That's how he viewed the work that he was doing. In the Old Testament, in Isaiah 66, 20, Israel is referred to as an offering to the Lord. Now the Gentiles, through Paul's ministry, were being prepared as an offering as well, he says. The gospel itself wasn't the purpose of Paul's ministry. It was the means by which the ministry 
was accomplished. And his ministry was to present an acceptable offering to God. How could the Gentiles be acceptable? Not as a nation, not as a group. We mentioned in our last study that they were a people without hope. We saw that in the book of Ephesians. How could they be an acceptable offering? Only through salvation. Only through their faith in the blood of Christ have they been brought near. The truth of the gospel of Christ has made them acceptable, and they have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit, he says. Set apart from the world to God. Remember, sanctified is a word that means to be set apart. So you're set apart before we belong to the world and we belong to sin. To be sanctified, to be set apart, is taken from that association, and now we're set apart to God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13 Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. All who are saved are chosen by God from the beginning. We looked at that in detail when we were in Romans chapter 9. The work of salvation involves both the hearing of the truth and the functioning of the Holy Spirit to bring about change in the heart of the one hearing. And anyone who is saved puts their faith in the truth of the gospel and they are set apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Now we are acceptable to God. That is the only way. Nothing else makes us acceptable before God, makes us an acceptable offering to God. And this is exactly what Paul was saying back in Romans 12 verse 1, which we looked at many times, where he said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's that same kind of priestly ministry that we have. We're to be presenting ourselves as an acceptable, acceptable sacrifice to God. Through the presentation of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit, we were made acceptable sacrifices and set apart for service to our Lord. So this was how Paul saw his ministry, not as a super Christian or as someone to be highly esteemed, but as a priest presenting an acceptable sacrifice to God. The fruits of my labor that you have given me by your grace to accomplish, that is what I have to offer you, is what he says to the Lord. And he draws his conclusion of verse 17. Where are we at? Ooh. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Therefore, so in light of his ministry, in light of the grace given to him by God, Paul has found reason to boast. Now, we might say, is this Paul say, saying, see, look at me, I've done such a great job with my ministry, I'm allowed a little leeway in, in boasting about my own accomplishments? No, that's not what he's saying here. Some may want to say, well, there's nothing wrong with boasting. Paul did it. But look how Paul did it. Look at how Paul boasted. First off, he found reason for it in Christ Jesus. This is where it centers. Only in his identity as a servant of the Lord was he boasting. And then he's boasting in things pertaining to God. Paul's own accomplishments aren't what Paul is boasting about. Paul is boasting in the work that God has accomplished through him that God has allowed him to be a part of, to be instrument of. Over in the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 6, we won't turn there, 
But he says there in Galatians 6, 14, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Boasting is glorying in. Paul is really saying he is glorying in the things pertaining to God. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross. It's a term of exaltation. Paul gives all the glory to God. He is the focal point of all that happens in my life and all that I'm able to do. So in verse 18, Paul continues on with his theme in the works in which he's boasting. He says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. You say, well, where's his focus? On what Christ has accomplished. So don't miss Paul's emphasis here. It isn't on what he has done, on what was done through him, but on what Christ is doing with his life. That's where Paul's posting is, boasting is. When you look at a, a, a fine painting, right, a masterpiece, right, a majestic piece, piece of art, your thought isn't usually, boy, what kind of paintbrush did they use for that painting? What was the paintbrush like? I want to know more about that paintbrush. No, who cares? I mean, maybe if you're an art person, you're like, okay, well, what's, what's the you know, you want to know some of those technical details. But what do you want to know? Who painted that? Who was the artist? The brush, while we may have a casual curiosity about it, well, it was just the instrument, the tool used to accomplish that work. But when we consider the majesty of the work that has been accomplished, we understand that it's the artist to whom the credit is due. Christ Jesus is the artist. Paul is the brush. You and I, we're brushes. We're paint brushes. Our boasting should be where Paul's was, on Christ who works. He just happens to use me and you and Paul to do it. What has Christ accomplished? The obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. The Gentiles coming to salvation, their obedience. Notice salvation and obedience go hand in hand. They're really one and the same. There's no such thing as a Christian who does not need to submit and be obedient to the Lord. The obedience of the Gentiles was a result of the words and deeds through or used during Paul's ministry, what Paul preached and what he did as the servant of God. It was through the message that God entrusted him with and the power that God gave him to validate his ministry. And he goes on and explains this more in verse 19. Um, where he says, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. In reference to deed, right, he talked about word and deed. Well, the first part of this verse, he talks about those deeds. He references that. The deeds of his ministry, we have the signs and wonders that were accomplished through Paul. The same as all the other apostles had. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that signs and wonders and miracles were signs of a true apostle. Hebrews 2, 4 tells us that God bore witness to his gospel and gave it validation in the early church through signs and wonders and miracles. Paul would have been no different, right? He would have had the same ability given to him as all the rest of the apostles had. But 
we always need to keep in mind, Paul was the last apostle, the last one that Christ appeared to, which was a requirement for apostleship. Christ appeared to Paul last of all, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. So that's why we don't have signs and wonders today. But Paul can talk about it because that was a part of his ministry. The time of new revelation is over. We have the completed word of God and there is no longer a need for those sign gifts. So those are gone. But Paul can reference them because he used them in his ministry. But the point here is not the signs and wonders, but where they came from, the power of the Spirit. Again, Paul's taking no credit for what he was able to accomplish in his service of the gospel. He gives credit to the work of the Holy Spirit being, uh, manifesting himself through Paul. Now, in the last part of the verse, he references word. Remember, he talked about word and deed. So we saw a deed, and now he goes back to word. He says, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And here is preaching of the gospel to all different regions. Illyricum would have been an area um, where Croatia and Herzegovina are today, the northwest, um, just to the northwest of Macedonia. Actually, farther than we have recorded of Paul's travels, but there's debate here on whether Paul actually went there or if he's just referencing an, an area, a path. Um, but either way, um, he says that he preached the gospel and he fully preached the gospel. And that doesn't mean that he had preached to every single person or that he had gone to every single city. But in his preaching of the gospel, he presented it in its entirety. He didn't pull any punches. He didn't fail in his commission. Where he had opportunity, the gospel was presented by Paul. And you think about the example of Paul. Um, can we ever say that of our own commission? Can we, can we truly say we've preached the gospel from Lincoln to Des Moines or north and south? Think of north and south, Kansas City to Minneapolis or whatever. He preached in word the gospel of Christ. Verses 20 and 21, he brings it together for the Romans. He's going to go into an explanation of why he has, after verse 21, we'll only get through 21 today and we'll just barely get there. We'll only get through verse 21 uh, but after that, he's going to go into an explanation of why he has not yet been able to make it to Rome. If you remember when we read in the intro, he was talking about wanting to come see them. Um, he had a desire to come see them, but he had been able, unable to thus far. So he tells them, starting in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. So he aspired to preach the gospel in places where it hadn't been heard. His ministry was not to go and to be a pastor of a church, but to plant churches. His ministry was to go in and start a church through evangelism, through missions, saying that it was um, staying until that church was well established and then moving on and leaving other godly men in charge to continue the work. Men like Apollos and Timothy and Titus and other people that were associated with Paul's ministry. So Paul was truly a missionary in this, and that was his role as an apostle. So therefore, in coming to visit the Romans, a church that had already been established, a church that was already spiritually mature, they were lower on his priority list. Verse 21, Paul quotes again from the Old Testament, Isaiah 52:15. A messianic reference referring to salvation coming to the nations, the Gentile nations. Just like Paul is talking about his, his work 
of going to the Gentiles, going out far and wide to finish the work that Christ started by coming to earth and providing a sacrifice for sins. Jesus Christ was able to accomplish much here on earth. We know that, right? But, when he came, but what he came to do was die on the cross. I know there are people that think that Christ came to earth to, to be a great teacher. That's not why he came. He taught great things while he was here. But he came to die. He came to provide a sacrifice, paying the penalty for our sins on the cross. Christ rose again and ascended into heaven, but his work here on earth is not done, even though he has ascended to heaven. And that's where Paul comes in. That's where today we come in. On earth, Christ was one man with two hands. Today, he's millions strong with millions of hands on earth to continue his work. How? Through his church, through us, through those that belong to him. We now are the hands of Christ. We are his workers. We are his servants. We're his paintbrushes. Through the grace that has been given us in the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Just like the apostle, Paul was his worker. We are not apostles like Paul was, but we have been given areas of ministry to serve in as well. To this local body is our place of service, to edify each other, to build one another up for the furtherance of the gospel. And we are the evangelists. We are to go out presenting the gospel. All that we do, we do for the Lord. But all the credit for what we do goes to God because it's what he's enabled us to do. We'll end there for today. Oh, yeah, we're over. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your word once again. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Romans. We thank you for the example of men like Paul and just the the example that we can see in the way that he viewed his ministry. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand that the work that we do for you is for your glory, not for our glory. It's it's nothing of us, Lord, but it is you working through us. We pray, Lord, that you would be honored and glorified and magnified through the things that you use us for. We pray, Lord, that we would be open to that and that we would be servants of yours, Lord, in every area of our lives. We pray, Lord, now as we go into the next hour, as we hear the word being taught once again, that you would just give us understanding and wisdom and help us, Lord, to learn these things and have a knowledge so that we can go out and serve you effectively. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.